Welcome to the Mark Copage Podcast Show. Join me each week as we welcome professionals from all areas of entertainment, in front of the scenes and behind, as they give advice and tell stories about their journey. We'll be right back with our first guest. Don't call me Cory Baker, call me Marco Posh. Cause I'm not Julia's son like I was before. Don't call me Cory My guest for today is a veteran of the entertainment industry. After a successful career in front of the camera, his next journey began behind the camera at the NBC television network. During his time working at NBC, he became fascinated with the subject of happiness and how you can choose to be happy regardless of your outer circumstances. He began writing and lecturing on the subject and now teaches the principles that go into creating lifelong happiness so you can make more money and have deeper, stronger relationships and live longer. The author of Happiness Rocks, a powerful blueprint to master the art of lifelong happiness, a book that has helped people all over the world create lives filled with joy, love, and prosperity and abundance. Welcome to the show, Mr. Happiness, Happiness <laughs> Coach, Ricky Powell. Hi, Mark. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm beaming from ear to ear. So you, you brought quite a smile there. Thank you so much. It's so great to be with you. Well, thank you so much for, for, for doing uh, the show here. You started out as a child actor. Uh, what other kinds of, of jobs have you had throughout the course of your life? Well, I did start out as a child actor, but you're leaving out a very important part. That was all thanks to you. Well, I, 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 I will We'll probably get to that, but go, <laughs> okay. go, go ahead and expound on that then. Well, yeah, no, of course. I mean, from the time I was, I don't know, four years old, I just remember pointing to the TV one day and, and saying, I want to be in there. So and, what, and then, you know, in, in the, the which was code, of course, for I want to be an actor. And then I just I remember being in, in my first grade classroom and the, and the teacher just told us all about this great new student who we were going to meet. And it was you. And then we became uh, fast friends and uh, the rest was history. So backtracking a little bit, what was the exact moment where you knew that you wanted to be an actor? Oh, gosh, I think just falling in love with some of those early shows like Bewitched, uh, especially that was my favorite. You, you show did a in guest, the world. guest shot on that, right? Bewitched. Yeah, I was on three episodes. I, 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 I really literally was living my dream, you know, from, from that early age. And, uh, so I've always been grateful to you for that, Mark. Well, we'll get more into that. I think it was my father that got you your first agent or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. He helped, he helped get me my first agent, which was Don Schwartz. So how was uh, it working with the cast of Bewitched? What were some of the the memories that, that you took away off that experience? And, oh, and it was do, you, so... do you remember the audition process or? Wow. You know what? That's a really good question. I don't, I really, that's one of the few things where I really don't remember the audition process as much as just getting the role and, and getting that news and just being over the top excited and happy and all of that. And uh and then showing up for work that first day and uh, my mom and I were walking on the set and I think, you know, we, we didn't really know if we were in the right place or not. And, and up walks Dick Sargent <laughs> and my mom said to him, 
um, excuse me, is this the bewitched set? And I, and I think I thought to myself, mom, wh what do you think? He, that's Darren. I think we're in the right place, you know? And, um, but, you know, from there, just getting to work with him and, and Elizabeth Montgomery and, and, uh, he Aaron, was certainly, uh, uh, a hottie that Elizabeth Montgomery. Oh, I had such a crush on her, uh, as, as a seven-year-old or eight-year-old. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> And yeah. uh, was Bewitched your first gig or what was your, your very first? Uh, Bewitched was the first TV show I did. The very, very first thing, even before that, was a Security Pacific Bank commercial. And it was when uh, Master Charge first came out, even before it was MasterCard. I don't know if you remember, it was called Master Charge. And mm. um, so it was my, the the kid who played my little brother and I walking into a bank and we walked up to the teller window and the teller was played by Marvin Kaplan, who was a big character actor back in the day. Is it and, the same Marvin Kaplan that was a, that, that was a casting director for general hospital at, uh, uh, later, or is that a whole different Marvin? That might've, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not really sure. It, it very well could have been a, a different one, but I remember Marvin Kaplan had a part in the movie. It's a mad, 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 mad world. He played one of the gas station attendants. <laughs> I, I could, I can look that movie up and that'll be my answer right there. Yeah. Uh, so, so you were how old now when you started as a child actor? Somewhere around seven. Around seven. Yeah. And uh, what other shows did you do? Uh, like from seven until about what age would you consider yourself actively being? Well, till, till about 20. I think I hung it up when I was about 20. So uh, lots of the old Shows like, aside from Bewitched, Mod Squad and Night Gallery, I got to do with Edward G. Robinson. And I had a recurring role on The Smith Family with Henry Fonda and Ron Howard. Um, I played his youngest kid's uh, best friend on that. I was on about, I think, five or six times. Little House on the Prairie, uh, <clears throat> The Rookies, uh, m many of those old shows, as well as commercials. I got to do the first Ego Waffle commercial, which was always fun. And uh, just, you know, lots of McDonald's, Crest toothpaste, Trident gum, you know, lots of those sorts of products. And then um, the last two things that I did uh, were I had I had one line in the movie Airplane 2, which was so much fun and, and I was hired by Howard Koch Sr. himself. He was just thumbing through the Academy Players directory one day and saw my picture and they had already shot the movie. And they wanted to go back and do additional jokes and gags. And so um, he called me in. I came and chatted with him for a few minutes. And he said, yeah, you're, you're perfect for this. I just want to introduce you to the writer-director, um, Ken Finkelman, I, I believe his name was, and uh, met him. And, and it was great. I, I was the, the first in a, in a sort of running gag um, at, throughout the movie. And, um, and then the... And then the other last thing I did was Tom Cruise's second movie called Losing It with uh, with Tom and Jackie Earl Haley and Shelley Long was in it as well. So I was in the first few scenes of that movie with uh, with Tom Cruise. No one even knew who he was. He hadn't uh, taps hadn't even been released yet. How was he to work with? He was great. I, I hung out with him for the day and he sort of told me the story of how he got into acting on a dare in high school and how he had done Guys and Dolls and then he was telling me all about taps and this amazing movie that he just did. And you got to see it. It's going to be so, you know, it's going to be so great. And then, you know, who knew and uh, kind of funny, I 
with the release of Top Gun just now, Top Gun Maverick, mm-hmm. uh, we, we went to the premiere um, down on the um, aircraft carrier and then the, the premiere afterwards. And, and so Tom was walking down the red carpet and I had quickly um, called up the photo that I had. I, I found it online of a photo of, of uh, Tom Cruise and Jackie Earl, Earl Haley and myself and I, as he was walking down the red carpet, I said, Tom, Tom, you got to see this. Come here for a minute. And I, I showed him the picture and I said I was in losing it with you, you know, 38 years ago or however long it was. And, and he just he was great. He was very, very nice, humble. He said, well, wow, that's so amazing and couldn't have been nicer. Yeah, I got no nothing. I mean, I, I don't I, I basically worked a, a party at his house, but uh, mm. I, I really can't. I have nothing. But I mean, he was very very gracious uh you know thanked everyone at like three in the morning as we were getting on the the bus to 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 take us back to our cars and you know came out to the balcony and just said hey i just want to thank you guys you guys all did a great job you know it's just a a bus full of caterers uh you know Mm -hmm. he's got other other things that he could have been doing but uh i I got nothing bad to say about him so you were pursuing acting pretty much pounding the payment as much as any you know kids can do we're dependent on our Mm -hmm. parents to take us to a lot of these auditions and stuff uh Mm -hmm. but from seven to 20 what was the moment when you said uh i'm not really sure if i want to do this anymore well the only thing that the only thing that made me give it up mark really is is that old thing that we're all familiar with which was uh (laughs) exactly you know what's what's your plan b right and but I remember all the while being on the set and and getting to see the the whole process and everything. I was just always so fascinated with the, with the production aspect and everything from you know the the clapper board, you know when when they would mention the take number and and do the sync thing and to to uh, the sound guys rolling the sound and um, the DPs or directors, you know, looking through the camera and I, I just found it all so much fun and and. Uh, I just loved it all. So I thought, you know, I thought, well, you know what, maybe, maybe I can find something just more study behind the camera. Or Which was smart. I, I, I was not as smart. I remember one moment when I was in my early twenties and I was at some kind of uh, convention for actors and I got approached by someone from the director's union. And I guess they were looking to uh, get more minorities into the director's union, uh-huh. director's guild. And I was asked if I wanted to be in this program and, you know, I was still young enough where I still thought I could earn a living as an actor. (laughs) So I declined, but uh, that's a good paycheck that, uh, you know, being a a AD first or second AD is both and and you're, you, you, you're a member of that union uh, or at least. Yeah. Yeah. I I was fortunate enough to, uh, to join in 1989, the director's guild and, and I was an associate director member. So, uh, and that was when I was at with Thomas Harris. So before I arrived at NBC, I, I first spent five years at with Thomas Harris productions they did soap and Benson back in the seventies. And then they moved on to the golden girls and empty nest and blossom and the John Larkett show. And so I started there after I graduated from Cal state Northridge in 1985 and uh, worked my way up and, and eventually got in the director's guild and became an associate director. There's that distinction in the director's guild between the film side and the, the tape side back, or at least, you know, 
Mm-hmm. Well, there was back then. I think there still is, in fact. What um, made you choose the tape side? It's Well, it's not that I, I didn't choose it. It chose me. <laughs> in other words, I was, I was moved into the position of post-associate director at Witt Thomas on, on one of the shows they were doing at the time called Heartland mm-hmm. with Brian Keith. It was a very short-lived show. Um, so they put me in the guild uh, so that I could be the post-AD on that show, which was tape. Mm-hmm. And then when that show went down, I became post-production manager. And that's how I really got to know them at NBC. When I first started there in 1985, I, I was a runner. I was a post runner and I was delivering the Golden Girls on one inch tape to to edit 10 at NBC back in those days. And then five years later, I was coming to view the show as a client. I was the post-production manager with Thomas. So that's how they got to know me. And then they started asking if I would want to fill in for their managers when they were on vacation, which I did. And, and then from there, I ended up leaving with Thomas in, let's see, I think 1990. And then that's when I, I went to NBC and it took two and a half years to get in there full time, but eventually I did. And I was there a total of 25 years Mm -hmm. putting all the shows on the air. So it wasn't a choice of like being a, a AD onset. You're, you're, you're going to, your hours are probably going to be longer. I mean, depending. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. It wasn't a conscious decision on you that you you didn't want to work all those hours and preferred to be the role that you that you evolved into. I'm imagining is is more of a a nine to five kind of job. Well, I don't know if there's honestly, I don't even know if there's such a thing as a nine to five job in the industry, (laughs) you know. (laughs) But I'll say this, where the choice came for me is that I was offered the position of editorial assistant on the Golden Girls. And where I had wanted to go with that was I wanted to be a stage manager and a stage manager is uh, is also a director's guild position. So while I knew that I would rather be a stage manager, I had the opportunity right in front of me to be an editorial assistant. So I said yes to that. And so I became the editorial assistant. And from there, that's kind of what led me down the path to post-associate director, which is basically working with the editor and just putting the whole show together. But I really, I don't regret for a moment making that decision because it, it really did turn into a, a 30-year wonderful career um, where I was really able to build something, you know, uh, for the future. So I, I, it, it was, it was the right thing to do. Um, and I can't believe I joined the director's guild in 1989 and, and here we are all these years later. Huh. Now, some people, well, there's, there's a school of thought, let's just say, cause I've been told this before. Oh, if you're going to get a job, a steady job, even if you're not acting in front of the camera, look for something, at least in the industry, and, you know, your, your position would be uh, an example of that too. But from what some people say, say well, because of at least if you're, you're around those people and, and, that, and that, you know, maybe you can get an acting job from just being around those people. Now, did you ever have an opportunity even to, to exercise your acting chops when you were in this behind the scenes, more behind the scenes? Like, is, is that not a reality and that's just like some kind of fantasy that people think that you're well <laughs> I, I think 
think it really depends on the individual circumstances. Uh, for me, uh, for me, it, it really didn't turn out that way. Although I certainly would have loved that. And listen, I mean, it's it's in my bones. You know, to to this day, if if something came up, if if the opportunity came up, and I'll tell you, what my favorite example of this was our uh, high school drama teacher, John Engel. Mm-hmm. Right. He he had always wanted to be an actor, and he was a, a theatrically, you know, cha- trained actor, and all of that. And we. You know, he just had this grand, booming personality and voice and, and all of that. And he was great at both drama and musical comedy and all of that. And it, it was just such a great experience learning from him. And then when he eventually retired, all of a sudden, you know, he he became a, a big soap actor and yeah. uh, was on General Hospital and then Days of Our Lives. He in fact, he shot Days of Our Lives right down the hall from me. And I. Uh, met up with him a couple of times when he was when he was on the lot uh, shooting right near me. But he had gone full into getting back into the acting acting uh, game. Uh, in other words, during your 30 years in post or, or however many years, it's not like someone said, hey, there's a, this role coming up. You would be perfect for that. Yeah, no, unfor- un- I don't. I hate to use the word unfortunately, but <laughs> nope, that that never happened. Never happened. Yeah. What other kinds of jobs have you had throughout the course of your life? Oh my gosh, Mark. I guess uh, not, because you've been working pretty steadily. I have. Uh, yeah. Pre- pretty. Yeah. Pretty steadily. With. Um, well, when you know, I wrote the book. I became fascinated with the subject of happiness while I was at NBC because my first nine years there were quite painful emotionally because I, I truly was working with a sociopath <laughs> and in an effort to try and help him, but really mostly try to help myself get through it. I picked up my first book on the subject of happiness by Dennis Prager called happiness is a serious problem. And uh, in trying to help him, of course, he wanted nothing to do with it, but I was so fascinated with the topic that I took it and ran with it. I read every book on the topic, listened to every program, and then finally wrote my own book. And while I was there also in 2009, I helped charter Toastmasters at NBC Universal. And I became their first vice president of education and then served as club president in a couple of years. And that experience, and not just stopping there, but going out into the seminar world and finding mentors in speaking and presenting and marketing and all of those things really helped satisfy that entrepreneurial bug that I had even while I was at NBC for all of those years. So when I left in 2015, I, I really hit the ground running and started working for a couple of companies where I was able to go out and start doing these trainings with major organizations and, and corporations on, on a multi- multitude of, of topics. So, you know, I got to speak to the U.S. Navy on conflict resolution and uh, the U.S. Senate on self-esteem and Cushman Wakefield on leadership. And then I, uh, I spoke at NBC Universal and Paramount and Warner Brothers uh, and, and also did a lot of speaking on happiness and positive psychology and mental health. I spoke at UTA, United Talent Agency on mental health, and that went really well. I really enjoyed all of that. You know, I, I do love coaching and, and speaking. Um, in, in fact, I just did yesterday a, a workshop for HBO on how to become an exceptional communicator, presenter, and leader, which went really well. That was virtual. And then 
a, a, a week from yesterday, this coming Saturday, I'm presenting at the Camarillo Public Library. I'm doing a 90-minute workshop on how to develop a growth mindset. So, so uh, you've pretty but, much been a professional happiness coach since 2015? Yeah, yeah, you could say that. And in the meantime, I've done so many things. I've done more things than I could probably count from, I, I remember going to a Be Your Own Boss Expo back when my daughter was in a stroller and, and we went there and I ended up buying four prototype gumball machines that hadn't even been manufactured yet. And uh, you put a quarter in and it drops a gumball down and then you play a game where you try to drop the gumball on a target. And if you do, you win something from the store, whether it's a discount on a haircut or, you know, where it depends on where the machine is, but I bought four of those things and placed them. And it was kind of funny because once a month or so I on my way into NBC, I would stop at the stores where I placed them and, and roll quarters. I'd collect all the quarters and roll them and give the shop owner their cut. And uh, so everything from that to uh, gosh, a psychic hotline to, um, Oh gosh, I don't know. I, I did everything. I've done everything. I've wow. sold cars. I've sold furniture. I've um, I've I've demonstrated high end uh, nonstick pans in in Sam's clubs. I've done so much of of that stuff. And I, you know, it's all it's been that roller coaster. But I've I've really enjoyed it all, each in their different way. You know. And I'm sure all those things would contribute to your acting too, even though you weren't pursuing it. But I think doing those different kinds of jobs mm -hmm. definitely makes you a, a, a more rounded person than, you know, if you would, you know, when you mm -hmm. don't have those kind of experiences. Uh, how does one go about finding a, a, a happiness coach and how does someone determine if someone is the right happiness coach for them? Well, um, of course, you can Google anything these days. Is and, that a big market? Are there a lot of other happiness coaches out there, or have you kind of cornered that yeah. market? No, no, no. I'm sure there there definitely are, and and um, it's. I think I've even really expanded from when I first started. I was so focused on the happiness aspect, and a lot of people hear the topic of happiness and just think that it's fluffy and fuzzy. And in fact, those were the exact words of a, of a particular gentleman who was in charge of learning and development uh, that I spoke to one day and, and I gave him a copy of my book. And, and he, and again, he is literally responsible for learning and development for the company. And he looked at my book and he looked at me and he said, you know, Ricky, I, I just don't get this happiness thing. I think it's fluffy and fuzzy and it's just, it's just not who we are. Something to that effect. And that's before he read one page of your book. Before he read one page, did you say? Yeah. He, in other yeah. words, he was forming yeah. his opinion for he, before he had even read your book. or read Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It, it didn't even matter. And by the way, the polar opposite of that example is that I was at a uh, I was doing a workshop at a Toastmasters Leadership Institute one weekend, and someone came up to to buy my book afterward, and introduced herself. She worked at Warner Brothers, and the next thing I knew, she called me a week later and she said, "Ricky, I I loved your book. I want to bring you in to speak with 150 of our financial employees uh, on on mindset and happiness and all of that." and And I said, "Great." and I, I did a preliminary meeting with she and her boss. And I remember walking in there to their, to her office and she had the book on her desk and there were more post-its 
you know, yellow post-its and dog-eared pages than I could even count. And it was just such a great thing. I wish, I wish in hindsight, I had taken a picture of that because it just was such a great feeling knowing that it, that it, it served its purpose. And, and then I did eventually come and speak to those employees and, uh, you know, it was, it was great, but to your, to your original question of how does someone find someone, it's, you know, a lot of word of mouth or finding online or whatnot. But I remember, I remember how one of my original clients found me and I, it was kind of a nice story. Um, I, I used to have something called the 30 day happiness challenge and what I did was I adapted it from another challenge that was created by, I, I love giving him credit because it's a fantastic book and challenge and all of it. His name is Will Bowen. And he wrote a book called A Complaint-Free World. Mm. And he, had, he, I think he still has it. At, at that time, he had a, a nonprofit called a complaintfreeworld.org. And his challenge was, you would put a rubber band on or a bracelet or whatever. You'd pick a wrist, put it on. You'd have to go 30 days in a row without complaining, criticizing, or gossiping. So, and if you caught yourself doing any of those things, you immediately had to switch wrists and start the 30 days over again. Hmm. So I love that so much. And I love the concept and the principle. And so for, for my happiness, lifelong happiness challenge, I called it, I tweaked it just a little so that I... I manufactured all of these lifelong happiness bracelets. So I would have someone put it on and then again, had to go 30 days in a row without complaining, criticizing or gossiping. However, I gave them an out where if you do catch yourself doing any of those things, you didn't have to start the 30 days over again. If within five minutes of catching yourself, you performed a random act of kindness. Hmm. So I, I thought that was a nice little twist. And then I also added the extra component of having to write down three things that you're grateful for every day. Hmm. So anyway, I, I had that out there at the time. I had a website called lifelonghappiness.com. It's, it's not up now, but I will definitely be putting it up again, hopefully soon. Um, and so I had the challenge on there. And the next thing I knew, I got an email from someone asking to, uh, to order the bracelets. You know, he wanted to order one for himself, one for his son. And I immediately called him back and had a fantastic conversation with him, but he was just so blown away that he could reach out via email and get a response almost immediately. You know, I did, it was on a weekend. I just happened to be home or something. So I called him and anyway, he be, he became my, my best and, and, uh, longest coaching client. And, uh, we, we had a great, you know, really helped him tremendously. So hmm. uh, that was kind of a nice experience. What are some of the skills that a person should have in place in order to be a successful happiness coach? I think it's important to have empathy and compassion and really be a great listener uh, for people um, not offering, you know, uh, it, you kind of want to be able to get out of people what it is they're looking for and be a guide for them to help them get themselves there. If that makes sense. It's not like, it's not like therapy where you're, you know, peeling back the layers of the onion and looking at past hurts and things like that. And, you know, it's, it's really more forward looking. Uh, although, you know, that your past certainly can play into it and it can be a topic of discussion, but it's just, it's, it, it definitely differs from therapy, so to speak. Hmm. Um, 
And, you know, I think it, it's just a matter of really getting to understand people and, and what makes them tick and, and find out what their goals and dreams are and, and what they want their outcomes to be. And then, and then go from there. There's lots of different tools. I studied neuro-linguistic programming, which is fascinating. I, I always wanted to take a deep dive into that. That's really what Tony Robbins has been doing all of these years hmm. is uh, neuro-linguistic programming. And, and he didn't invent it. It was invented in the 1970s by two gentlemen, John Grinder and Richard Bandler. And then he just kind of took it to the next level. And then finally, several years ago, I, I got certified and took a, a couple of certification courses in that. And uh, not even, it's not even that I use it so much day to day anymore, but it's still just great having that knowledge and, and knowing those tools and, and how to help people in, in as many ways as possible. Hmm. What have been some of your biggest challenges in working with uh, various clients? I think, uh, I think it's hard for a lot of people to just let go and give in to the um, surrender, if you will, that they truly want to move forward in a positive way and not look back and push through the fear of the unknown and, and all of that. It takes a commitment, you know, uh, things don't just happen. You, you have to really make them happen if that makes sense. Of course, things do just happen. I mean, there's coincidences every day. I don't, I don't believe in coincidences so much. I think really everything does happen for a reason. In fact, uh, Jim Rohn. So when, when I took that dive into Tony Robbins and all of his work, I found out that his mentor was Jim Rohn. And in learning that and in studying Jim Rohn, I just became so much more I just resonated more with Jim Rohn even than Tony Robbins. And he has so many great quotes. I could quote him all day long, but one of my favorites from him was your personal philosophy is the greatest determining factor in how your life works out. Mm. Your personal philosophy is the greatest determining factor in how your life works out. And I thought, wow, that that's so powerful. I love that. And, and yeah. then I thought, well, what's my personal philosophy? And and I, I came up with everything happens for a reason. And I really think it does. And a lot of people do subscribe to that theory. And then there's another whole set of people who don't. And their reasoning many times is, I don't think everything happens for a reason, because if that were true, how could there be, why would there be cancer or the Holocaust or all of these tragedies that, that so many of us face on a daily basis. Don't call me Corey Baker, call me Marco Potts, cause I'm not Julius son, not anymore. Don't call me Corey Baker, call me Marco Potts, cause I'm not Julius son like I was before.